Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing New England Journal of Medicine Semaglutide in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and obesity Background Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is increasing in prevalence and is associated with a high symptom burden and functional impairment, especially in persons with obesity. No therapies have been approved to target obesity-related heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Methods We randomly assigned 529 patients who had heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and a body mass index, the weight in kilograms divided by the square of the height in meters, of 30 or higher to receive once-weekly semaglutide, 2.4 mg, or placebo for 52 weeks. The dual primary endpoints were the change from baseline in the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire Clinical Summary Score, KCCQ-CSS, scores range from 0 to 100, with higher scores indicating fewer symptoms and physical limitations, and the change in body weight. Confirmatory secondary endpoints included the change in the 6-minute walk distance, a hierarchical composite endpoint that included death, heart failure events, and differences in the change in the KCCQ CSS and 6-minute walk distance, and the change in the C-reactive protein, CRP, level. Results The mean change in the KCCQ CSS was 16.6 points with semaglutide and 8.7 points with placebo, estimated difference, 7.8 points, 95% confidence interval, C, 4.8-10.9, P less than 0.001, and the mean percentage change in body weight was minus 13.3% with semaglutide and minus 2.6% with placebo, estimated difference, minus 10.7 percentage points, 95% C, minus 11.9 to minus 9.4, P less than 0.001. The mean change in the 6-minute walk distance was 21.5 meters with semaglutide and 1.2 meters with placebo, estimated difference, 20.3 meters, 95% C, 8.6 to 32.1, P less than 0.001. In the analysis of the hierarchical composite endpoint, semaglutide produced more wins than placebo, win ratio, 1.72, 95% C, 1.37 to 2.15, P less than 0.001. The mean percentage change in the CRP level was minus 43.5% with semaglutide and minus 7.3% with placebo, estimated treatment ratio, 0.61, 95% C, 0.51 to 0.72, P less than 0.001. Serious adverse events were reported in 35 participants, 13.3%, in the semaglutide group and 71, 26.7%, 
in the placebo group. Conclusions In patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and obesity, treatment with semaglutide, 2.4 mg, led to larger reductions in symptoms and physical limitations, greater improvements in exercise function, and greater weight loss than placebo. Second article. Inhaled fluticasone furoweight for outpatient treatment of COVID-19. Background. The effectiveness of inhaled glucocorticoids in shortening the time to symptom resolution or preventing hospitalization or death among outpatients with mild to moderate coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19, is unclear. Methods. We conducted a decentralized, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled platform trial in the United States to assess the use of repurposed medications in outpatients with confirmed coronavirus disease 2019 COVID-19. Non-hospitalized adults 30 years of age or older who had at least two symptoms of acute infection that had been present for no more than seven days before enrollment were randomly assigned to receive inhaled fluticasone furoweight at a dose of 200 g once daily for 14 days or placebo. The primary outcome was the time to sustained recovery, defined as the third of three consecutive days without symptoms. Key secondary outcomes included hospitalization or death by day 28 and a composite outcome of the need for an urgent care or emergency department visit or hospitalization or death through day 28. Results Of the 1,407 enrolled participants who underwent randomization, 715 were assigned to receive inhaled fluticasone furoweight and 692 to receive placebo, and 656 and 621, respectively, were included in the analysis. There was no evidence that the use of fluticasone furoweight resulted in a shorter time to recovery than placebo, hazard ratio, 1.01, 95% credible interval, 0.91 to 1.12, posterior probability of benefit, defined as a hazard ratio greater than 1, 0.56. A total of 24 participants, 3.7%, in the fluticasone furoweight group had urgent care or emergency department visits, or were hospitalized, as compared with 13 participants, 2.1%, in the placebo group, hazard ratio, 1.9, 95% credible interval, 0.8 to 3.5. Three participants in each group were hospitalized, and no deaths occurred. Adverse events were uncommon in both groups. Conclusions Treatment with inhaled fluticasone furoweight for 14 days did not result in a shorter time to recovery than placebo among outpatients with COVID-19 in the United States. Third article trial of solanizumab in preclinical Alzheimer's disease introduction, trials of monoclonal antibodies that target various forms of amyloid at different stages of Alzheimer's disease have had mixed results. Methods We tested solanizumab, which targets monomeric amyloid, in a phase 3 trial involving persons with preclinical Alzheimer's disease. Persons 65 to 85 years of age with a global clinical dementia rating score of 0, range, 0 to 3, with 0 indicating no cognitive impairment and 3 severe dementia, a score on the mini mental state examination of 25 or more, range, 0 to 30, with lower scores indicating poorer cognition, and elevated brain amyloid levels on 18F fluorbetapyr positron emission tomography, PET, were enrolled. Participants were randomly assigned in a 1 to 1 ratio to receive solanizumab at a dose of up to 1,600 mg intravenously every 4 weeks or placebo. 
The primary endpoint was the change in the preclinical Alzheimer cognitive composite, PACC, score, calculated as the sum of four Z-scores, with higher scores indicating better cognitive performance, over a period of 240 weeks. Results A total of 1,169 persons underwent randomization, 578 were assigned to the solanizumab group and 591 to the placebo group. The mean age of the participants was 72 years, approximately 60% were women, and 75% had a family history of dementia. At 240 weeks, the mean change in PAC score was minus 1.43 in the solanizumab group and minus 1.13 in the placebo group, difference, minus 0.30, confidence interval, minus 0.82 to 0.22, P equals 0.26. Amyloid levels on brain PET increased by a mean of 11.6 centiloids in the solanizumab group and 19.3 centiloids in the placebo group. Amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, ARIA, with edema occurred in less than 1% of the participants in each group. ARIA with microhemorrhage or hemosiderosis occurred in 29.2% of the participants in the solanizumab group and 32.8% of those in the placebo group. Conclusions Solanizumab, which targets monomeric amyloid in persons with elevated brain amyloid levels, did not slow cognitive decline as compared with placebo over a period of 240 weeks in persons with preclinical Alzheimer's disease. JAMA Two-year outcomes after minimally invasive surfactant therapy in preterm infants. Follow-up of the Optimist A randomized clinical trial. Importance The long-term effects of surfactant administration via a thin catheter, minimally invasive surfactant therapy, MIST, in preterm infants with respiratory distress syndrome remain to be definitively clarified. Objective to examine the effect of MIST on death or neurodevelopmental disability, NDD, at two years corrected age. Design, setting, and participants follow-up study of a randomized clinical trial with blinding of clinicians and outcome assessors conducted in 33 tertiary-level neonatal intensive care units in 11 countries. The trial included 486 infants with a gestational age of 25 to 28 weeks supported with continuous positive airway pressure, CPAP. Collection of follow-up data at two years corrected age was completed on December 9, 2022. Interventions infants assigned to MIST, N equals 242, received exogenous surfactant, 200 mg kg per actant alpha via a thin catheter, those assigned to the control group. N equals 244, received sham treatment. Main outcomes and measures the key secondary outcome of death or moderate to severe NDD was assessed at two years corrected age. Other secondary outcomes included components of this composite outcome, as well as hospitalizations for respiratory illness and parent reported wheezing or breathing difficulty in the first two years. Results among the 486 infants randomized, 453 have follow-up data available, Median gestation, 27.3 weeks, 228 females, 50.3%. Data on the key secondary outcome were available in 434 infants. Death or NDD occurred in 78 infants, 36.3%, in the MIS group and 79, 36.1%, in the control group, risk difference, 0%, 95% C, minus 7.6% to 7.7%, relative risk, RR. 1.0, 95% C, 0.81 to 1.24, components of this outcome did not differ significantly between groups.
Secondary respiratory outcomes favored the MISC group. Hospitalization with respiratory illness occurred in 49 infants, 25.1%, in the MISC group versus 78, 38.2%, in the control group, RR, 0.66, 95% C, 0.54 to 0.81, and parent reported wheezing or breathing difficulty in 73, 40.6%, versus 104, 53.6%, respectively, RR, 0.76, 95% C, 0.63 to 0.90. Conclusions and relevance in this follow-up study of a randomized clinical trial of preterm infants with respiratory distress syndrome supported with CPAP, miscompared with sham treatment did not reduce the incidence of death or NDD by two years of age. However, infants who received MIST had lower rates of adverse respiratory outcomes during their first two years of life. Annals of Internal Medicine Comparative Safety Analysis of Oral Antipsychotics for In-Hospital Adverse Clinical Events in Older Adults After Major Surgery A Nationwide Cohort Study Abstract Background Antipsychotics are commonly used to manage postoperative delirium. Recent studies reported that haloperidol use has declined, and atypical antipsychotic use has increased over time. Objective to compare the risk for in-hospital adverse events associated with oral haloperidol, olanzapine, putiapine, and risperidone in older patients after major surgery. Design. Retrospective cohort study. Setting. U.S. hospitals in the Premier Healthcare Database. Patients. 17,115 patients aged 65 years and older without psychiatric disorders who were prescribed an oral antipsychotic drug after major surgery from 2009 to 2018. Interventions Haloperidol, less than or equal to 4 mg on the day of initiation, olanzapine, less than or equal to 10 mg, quetiapine, less than or equal to 150 mg, and risperidone, less than or equal to 4 mg. Measurements the risk ratios, RRs, for in-hospital death, cardiac arrhythmia events, pneumonia, and stroke or transient ischemic attack, TIA, were estimated at a propensity score overlap weighting. Results The weighted population had a mean age of 79.6 years, was 60.5% female, and had in-hospital death of 3.1%. Among the four antipsychotics, quetiapine was the most prescribed, 53.0% of total exposure. There was no statistically significant difference in the risk for in-hospital death among patients treated with haloperidol, 3.7%, reference group, olanzapine, 2.8%, RR, 0.74, 95% C, 0.42 to 1.27, quetiapine, 2.6%, RR, 0.70 C, 0.47 to 1.04, and risperidone, 3.3%, RR, 0.90, C, 0.53 to 1.41. The risk for non-fatal clinical events ranged from 2.0% to 2.6% for a cardiac arrhythmia event, 4.2% to 4.6% for pneumonia, and 0.6% to 1.2% for stroke or TIA, with no statistically significant differences by treatment group. Limitation Residual confounding by delirium severity, lack of untreated group, restriction to oral low to moderate dose treatment. Conclusion 
These results suggest that atypical antipsychotics and haloperidol have similar rates of in-hospital adverse clinical events in older patients with postoperative delirium who receive an oral low-to-moderate-dose antipsychotic drug. Second article. The effect of low-dose glucocorticoids over two years on weight and blood pressure in rheumatoid arthritis, individual patient data from five randomized trials. Background. Weight gain and hypertension are well-known adverse effects of treatment with high-dose glucocorticoids. Objective. To evaluate the effects of two years of low-dose glucocorticoid treatment in rheumatoid arthritis, RA. Design. Pooled analysis of five randomized controlled trials with two-year interventions allowing concomitant treatment with disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. Setting. 12 countries in Europe. Patients. Early and established RA. Intervention. Glucocorticoids at 7.5 mg or less prednisone equivalent per day. Measurements. Co-primary endpoints were differences in change from baseline in body weight and mean arterial pressure after two years in intention to treat analyzes. Difference in the change of number of antihypertensive drugs after two years was a secondary endpoint. Subgroup and sensitivity analyzes were done to assess the robustness of primary findings. Results A total of 1,112 participants were included, mean age, 61.4 years, SD, 14.5, 68% women. Both groups gained weight in two years, but glucocorticoids led, on average, to 1.1 kg, 95% C, 0.4 to 1.8 kg p less than 0.001, more weight gain than the controlled treatment. Mean arterial pressure increased by about 2 mm Hg in both groups, with a between group difference of minus 0.4 mm Hg, c, minus 3.0 to 2.2 mm Hg, p equals 0.187. These results were consistent in sensitivity and subgroup analyzes. Most patients did not change the number of antihypertensive drugs, and there was no evidence of differences between groups. Limitation Body composition was not assessed, and generalizability to non-European regions may be limited. Conclusion This study provides robust evidence that low-dose glucocorticoids, received over two years for the treatment of RA, increase weight by about 1 kg but do not increase blood pressure. Nature Medicine Longitudinal genomic surveillance of carriage and transmission of Clostridioides difficile in an intensive care unit. Despite enhanced infection prevention efforts, Clostridioides difficile remains the leading cause of healthcare-associated infections in the United States. Current prevention strategies are limited by their failure to account for patients who carry C. difficile asymptomatically, who may act as hidden reservoirs transmitting infections to other patients. To improve the understanding of asymptomatic carriers' contribution to C. difficile spread, we conducted admission and daily longitudinal culture-based screening for C. difficile in a U.S.-based intensive care unit over nine months and performed whole genome sequencing on all recovered isolates. Despite a high burden of carriage, with 9.3% of admissions having toxigenic C. difficile detected in at least one sample, only 1% of patients culturing negative on admission to the unit acquired C. difficile via cross-transmission. While patients who carried toxigenic C. difficile on admission posed minimal risk to others, they themselves had a 24 times greater risk for developing a healthcare onset C. difficile infection than non-carriers. Together, 
These findings suggest that current infection prevention practices can be effective in preventing nosocomial cross-transmission of C. difficile, and that decreasing C. difficile infections in hospitals further will require interventions targeting the transition from asymptomatic carriage to infection. British Medical Journal Sensitivity, Specificity, and Diagnostic Accuracy of WHO 2013 Criteria for Diagnosis of Gestational Diabetes Mellitus in Low-Risk Early Pregnancies, International, Perspective, Multicenter Cohort Study Objective to evaluate the predictability of gestational diabetes mellitus WTHS75G Oral Glucose Tolerance Test, OGTT, in early pregnancy, based on the 2013 criteria of the World Health Organization, and to test newly proposed cutoff values. Design International, Perspective, Multicenter Cohort Study Setting six university or cantonal departments in Austria, Germany, and Switzerland, from May 1, 2016 to January 31, 2019. Participants low-risk cohort of 829 participants aged 18 to 45 years with singleton pregnancies attending first trimester screening and can consenting to have an early 75 GOGTT 12 to 15 weeks of gestation. Participants and healthcare providers were blinded to the results. Main outcome measures fasting, 1 hour and 2 hour plasma glucose concentrations after an early 75 GOGTT 12 to 15 weeks of gestation and a late 75 GOGTT, 24 to 28 weeks of gestation. Results of 636 participants, 74, 12%, developed gestational diabetes mellitus, according to World Health Organization 2013 criteria, at 24 to 28 weeks of gestation. Applying WHO 2013 criteria to the early OGTT with at least one abnormal value gave a low sensitivity of 0.35, 95% confidence interval 0.24 to 0.47, high specificity of 0.96, 0.95 to 0.98, positive predictive value of 0.57, 0.41 to 0.71, negative predictive value of 0.92, 0.89 to 0.94, positive likelihood ratio of 10.46, 6.21 to 17.63, Negative likelihood ratio of 0.65, 0.55 to 0.78, and diagnostic odds ratio of 15.98, 8.38 to 30.47. Lowering the postload glucose values, 75 GOGTT cutoff values of 5.1, 8.9, and 7.8 mL/L, improve the detection rate, 53%, 95% confidence interval 41% to 64%, and negative predictive value, 0.94, 0.91 0.95, but decreased the specificity, 0.91, 0.88 0.93, and positive predictive value, 0.42, 0.32-0.53, at a false positive rate of 9%, positive likelihood ratio 5.59, 4.0-7.81, negative likelihood ratio 0.64, 0.52 to 0.77, and diagnostic odds ratio 10.07, 6.26 to 18.31. Conclusions, the results of this prospective low-risk cohort study indicated that the 75 GOGTT as a screening tool in early pregnancy is not sensitive enough when applying WHO 2013 criteria. Postload glucose values were higher in early pregnancy complicated by diabetes in pregnancy. 
Lowering the postload cutoff values identified a high-risk group for later development of gestational diabetes mellitus or those who might benefit from earlier treatment. Results from randomized controlled trials showing a beneficial effect of early intervention are unclear. Second article. Preconception Contraceptive Use and Miscarriage Prospective Cohort Study. Objectives to Evaluate the Association Between Preconception Contraceptive Use and Miscarriage. Design Prospective Cohort Study. Setting residents of the United States of America or Canada recruited from 2013 until the end of 2022. Participants 13460 female identified participants aged 21 to 45 years who were planning a pregnancy were included, of whom 8,899 conceived. Participants reported data for contraceptive history, early pregnancy, miscarriage and potential confounders during preconception and pregnancy. Main outcome measure miscarriage defined as pregnancy loss before 20 weeks of gestation. Results preconception use of combined and progestin-only oral contraceptives, hormonal intrauterine devices, copper intrauterine devices, rings, implants, or natural methods was not associated with miscarriage compared with use of barrier methods. Participants who most recently used patch incidence rate ratios 1.34, 95% confidence interval 0.81 to 2.21, or injectable contraceptives, 1.44, 0.99 to 2.12, had higher rates of miscarriage compared with recent users of barrier methods, although results were imprecise due to the small numbers of participants who used patch and injectable contraceptives. Conclusions Use of most contraceptives before conception was not appreciably associated with miscarriage rate. Individuals who used patch and injectable contraceptives had higher rates of miscarriage relative to users of barrier methods, although these results were imprecise and residual confounding was possible. Lancet. Effective primaquine dose on the risk of recurrence in patients with uncomplicated plasmodium vivax, a systematic review in individual patient data meta-analysis. Background. Primaquine is used to eliminate plasmodium vivax hypnozoids, but its optimal dosing regimen remains unclear. We undertook a systematic review in individual patient data meta-analysis to investigate the efficacy and tolerability of different primaquine dosing regimens to prevent P-Vivax recurrence. Methods For this systematic review in individual patient data meta-analysis, we searched Medline, Web of Science, InBase and Cochrane Central for prospective clinical studies of uncomplicated P-Vivax from endemic countries published between Jan 1, 2000 and June 8, 2023. Findings. Of 226 identified studies, 23 studies with patient-level data from 6,879 patients from 16 countries were included in the efficacy analysis. At day 180, the risk of recurrence was 51 middle.0%, 95% C48 middle.2 to 53 middle.9, in 1470 patients treated without primaquine, 19 middle.3%, 16 middle.9 to 21 middle.9 in 2,569 patients treated with a low total dose of primaquine, approximately 3 middle.5 mg slash kg, and 8 middle.1%, 7 middle.0 to 9 middle.4, in 2,811 patients treated with a high total dose of primaquine, approximately 7 mg slash kg, regardless of primaquine treatment duration. Compared with treatment without primaquine, the rate of P-Vivax recurrence was lower after treatment with low-dose primaquine, adjusted hazard ratio 0 middle.21, 
95% C0 middle.17 to 0 middle.27, P less than 0 middle.0001, and high dose primaquine, 0 middle.10, 0 middle.08 to 0 middle.12, P less than 0 middle.0001. High dose primaquine had greater efficacy than low dose primaquine in regions with high and low relapse periodicity, e. the time from initial infection to Vivax relapse. 16 studies with patient-level data from 5,609 patients from 10 countries were included in the tolerability analysis. Gastrointestinal symptoms on days 5 to 7 were reported by 4 middle.0%, 95% C0 middle.0 to 8 middle.7, of 893 patients treated without primaquine, 6 middle.2%, 0 middle.5 to 12 middle.0, of 737 patients treated with a low daily dose of primaquine, approximately 0 middle.25 mg kg per day, 5 middle.9%, 1 middle.8 to 10 middle.1, of 1,123 patients treated with an intermediate daily dose, approximately 0 middle.5 mg kg per day, and 10 middle.9%, 5 middle.7 to 16 middle.1, of 1,178 patients treated with a high daily dose, approximately 1 mg kg per day. 20 of 23 studies included in the efficacy analysis and 15 of 16 in the tolerability analysis had a low or unclear risk of bias. Interpretation Increasing the total dose of primaquine from 3 middle.5 mg kg to 7 mg kg can reduce P5X recurrences by more than 50% in most endemic regions, with a small associated increase in gastrointestinal symptoms. Lancet Effective primaquine dose on the risk of recurrence in patients with uncomplicated plasmodium vivax, a systematic review in individual patient data meta-analysis. Background Primaquine is used to eliminate plasmodium vivax hypnozoids, but its optimal dosing regimen remains unclear. We undertook a systematic review in individual patient data meta-analysis to investigate the efficacy and tolerability of different primaquine dosing regimens to prevent P. vivax recurrence. Methods For this systematic review in individual patient data meta-analysis, we searched Medline, Web of Science, Inbase and Cochrane Central for prospective clinical studies of uncomplicated P. vivax from endemic countries published between Jan 1, 2000, and June 8, 2023. Findings Of 226 identified studies, 23 studies with patient-level data from 6,879 patients from 16 countries were included in the efficacy analysis. At day 180, the risk of recurrence was 51 middle.0%, 95% C48 middle.2 to 53 middle.9, in 1470 patients treated without primaquine, 19 middle.3%, 16 middle.9 to 21 middle.9, in 2569 patients treated with a low total dose of primaquine, approximately 3 middle.5 mg kg, and 8 middle.1%, 7 middle.0 to 9 middle.4, in 2,811 patients treated with a high total dose of primaquine, approximately 7 mg kg, regardless of primaquine treatment duration. Compared with treatment without primaquine, the rate of P. vivax recurrence was lower after treatment with low-dose primaquine, adjusted hazard ratio 0 middle.21, 95% C0 middle.17 to 0 middle.27, P less than 0 middle.0001, and high-dose primaquine, 
0 middle dot 10, 0 middle dot 08 to 0 middle dot 12, P less than 0 middle dot 0001. High dose primaquine had greater efficacy than low dose primaquine in regions with high and low relapse periodicity, e. the time from initial infection to Vivax relapse. 16 studies with patient-level data from 5,609 patients from 10 countries were included in the tolerability analysis. Gastrointestinal symptoms on days 5 to 7 were reported by 4 middle.0%, 95% C0 middle.0 to 8 middle.7, of 893 patients treated without primaquine, 6 middle.2%, 0 middle.5 to 12 middle.0, of 737 patients treated with a low daily dose of primaquine, approximately 0 middle.25 mg kg per day, 5 middle.9%, 1 middle.8 to 10 middle.1, of 1,123 patients treated with an intermediate daily dose, approximately 0 middle.5 mg kg per day, and 10 middle.9%, 5 middle.7 to 16 middle.1, of 1,178 patients treated with a high daily dose, approximately 1 mg kg per day. 20 of 23 studies included in the efficacy analysis and 15 of 16 in the tolerability analysis had a low or unclear risk of bias. Interpretation Increasing the total dose of primaquine from 3 middle.5 mg kg to 7 mg kg can reduce P5X recurrences by more than 50% in most endemic regions, with a small associated increase in gastrointestinal symptoms. Journal of Clinical Oncology Randomized trial of exercise and nutrition on chemotherapy completion and pathologic complete response in women with breast cancer, the lifestyle, exercise, and nutrition early after diagnosis study. Purpose Successful completion of chemotherapy is critical to improve breast cancer outcomes. Relative dose intensity, RDI, defined as the ratio of chemotherapy delivered to prescribed, is a measure of chemotherapy completion and is associated with cancer mortality. The effect of exercise and eating a healthy diet on RDI is unknown. We conducted a randomized trial of an exercise and nutrition intervention on RDI and pathologic complete response, PCR, in women diagnosed with breast cancer initiating chemotherapy. Methods 173 women with stage I3 breast cancer were randomly assigned to usual care, UC, N equals 86, or a home-based exercise and nutrition intervention with counseling sessions delivered by oncology-certified registered dietitians, N equals 87. Chemotherapy dose adjustments and delays in PCR were abstracted from electronic medical records. T-tests and chi-square tests were used to examine the effect of the intervention versus UC on RDI and PCR. Results Participants randomly assigned to intervention had greater improvements in exercise and diet quality compared with UC, P less than 0.05. RDI was 92.9% plus or minus 12.1% and 93.6% plus or minus 11.1% for intervention and UC, respectively, P equals 0.69, the proportion of patients in the intervention versus UC who achieved greater than or equal to 85% RDI was 81% and 85%, respectively, P equals 0.44. The proportion of patients who had at least one dose reduction and or delay was 38% intervention and 36% UC, P equals 0.80. Among 72 women who received neoadjuvant chemotherapy, 
women randomly assigned to intervention were more likely to have a PCR than those randomly assigned to UC, 53% v 28%, p equals 0.037. Conclusion Although a diet and exercise intervention did not affect RDI, the intervention was associated with a higher PCR in patients with hormone receptor positive slash human epidermal growth factor receptor 2 negative and triple negative breast cancer undergoing neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Clinical Infectious Diseases Antiretroviral Therapy Intensification for Neurocognitive Impairment in Human Immunodeficiency Virus Background Neurocognitive Impairment, NCI, in people with HIV, PWH on antiretroviral therapy, ART, is common and may result from persistent HIV replication in the central nervous system. Methods A5324 was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, 96-week trial of ART intensification with dolutegravir, DTG, plus MBC, DTG plus placebo or dual, placebo and PWH with plasma HIV RNA less than 50 copies per milliliter on ART and NCI. The primary outcome was the change on the normalized total Z-score, E, the mean of individual NC test Z-scores, at week 48. Results Of 357 screened, 191 enrolled, 71% male, 51% black race, 22% Hispanic ethnicity, mean age 52 years, mean CD4 plus T cells 681 cells per microliter. Most, 65%, had symptomatic HIV-associated NC disorder. Steady drug was discontinued due to an adverse event in 15, 8%, and did not differ between arms, P equals 0.17. Total Z-score, depressive symptoms, and daily functioning improved over time in all arms with no significant differences between them at week 48 or later. Adjusting for age, sex, race, study site, afavorins use, or baseline Z-score did not alter the results. Body mass index modestly increased over 96 weeks, mean increase 0.32 kg M2, P equals 0.006, and did not differ between arms, P greater than 0.10. Conclusions This is the largest, randomized, placebo-controlled trial of art intensification for NCI and PWH. The findings do not support empiric art intensification as a treatment for NCI and PWH on suppressive art. They also do not support that DTG adversely affects cognition, mood, or weight. Journal of Infectious Diseases Bacterial vaginosis and spontaneous clearance of chlamydia trachomatis in the longitudinal study of vaginal flora. Background up to 26% of urogenital chlamydia trachomatis infections spontaneously resolve between detection and treatment. Mechanisms governing natural resolution are unknown. We examined whether bacterial vaginosis, BV, was associated with greater chlamydia persistence versus spontaneous clearance in a large, longitudinal study. Methods Between 1999 and 2003, the longitudinal study of vaginal flora followed reproductive age women quarterly for one year. Baseline chlamydia screening and treatment were initiated after ligase chain reaction testing became available mid-study, and unscreened endocervical samples were tested after study completion. Chlamydia clearance and persistence were defined between consecutive visits without chlamydia active antibiotics, N equals 320 persistence slash N equals 310 clearance. Associations between Nugent score, 0 to 3, no BV, 4 to 10, 
intermediate slash BV, OMSL BV, and chlamydia persistence versus clearance were modeled with alternating and conditional logistic regression. Results Of chlamydia cases, 48% spontaneously cleared by the next visit, 310-630. Nugent intermediate slash BV was associated with higher odds of chlamydia persistence, adjusted odds ratio, AOR, equals 1.89, 95% confidence interval, C, 1.30 to 2.74, and the findings were similar for OMSL BV, AOR 1.39, 95% C, 0.99 to 1.96. The association between Nugent intermediate slash BV and chlamydia persistence was stronger in a within-participant analysis of 67 participants with both clearance slash persistence intervals, AOR equals 4.77. 95% C, 1.39 to 16.35. BV symptoms did not affect any results. Conclusions BV is associated with greater chlamydia persistence. Optimizing the vaginal microbiome may promote chlamydia clearance. Journal of Clinical Rheumatology Disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug use and its effect on long-term opioid use in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Background slash objectives the prevalence of chronic pain is high in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, RA, increasing the risk for opioid use. The objective of this study was to assess disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug, DMARD, use and its effect on long-term opioid use in patients with RA. Methods This cohort study included Medicare beneficiaries with diagnosis of RA who received at least 30-day consecutive prescription of opioids in 2017, and equals 23,608. The patients were grouped into non-DMARD and DMARD users, who were further subdivided into regimens set forth by the American College of Rheumatology. The outcome measured was long-term opioid use in 2018 defined as at least 90-day consecutive prescription of opioids. Dose and duration of opioid use were also assessed. A multivariable model identifying factors associated with non-DMARD use was also performed. Results Compared with non-DMARD users, the odds of long-term opioid use were significantly lower among DMARD users, odds ratio, 0.89, 95% confidence interval, 0.83 to 0.95. All regimens except non-tumor necrosis factor biologic plus methotrexate were associated with lower odds of long-term opioid use relative to non-DMARD users. The mean total morphine milligram equivalent, Morphine milligram equivalent per day, and total days of opioid use were lower among DMARD users compared with non-DMARD users. Older age, male sex, black race, psychiatric and medical comorbidities, and not being seen by a rheumatologist were significantly associated with non-DMARD use. Conclusion Disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug use was associated with lower odds of long-term opioid use among RA patients with baseline opioid prescription. Factors associated with non-DMARD use represent a window of opportunity for intervention to improve pain-related quality of life in patients living with RA. Circulation Early ablation for atrial fibrillation after admission for heart failure Perspective AF and HF are common comorbidities, and clinical outcomes of patients with both conditions are worse than the patients with either disease alone. With few drug options having a neutral effect on mortality, and ablation being superior to even amiodarone in HF patients, ablation has emerged as a potential breakthrough in these patients. The previously published Castle AF, 
Catheter ablation for atrial fibrillation with heart failure, trials showed that catheter ablation for AF in patients with severe HF reduces hospitalization and mortality. Additional studies have shown similar findings. The authors of the present retrospective, non-randomized, cohort study show that ablation within three months of HF admission was associated with reduced long-term mortality, as well as cardiovascular and HF death. Future studies will be needed to confirm these findings and to attempt to identify the most optimal timing for AF ablation in HF patients. Study questions. What is the prognostic impact of early catheter ablation in patients with heart failure, HF, and atrial fibrillation, AF, hospitalized due to worsening HF? Methods. The authors used the Japanese Registry of Acute Decompensated Heart Failure, N equals 13,238, to identify HF patients with AF who underwent catheter ablation within 90 days after admission for HF, early ablation, N equals 103, and those who did not, control, N equals 2,683. Mortality was compared between these groups in the crude cohort, as well as in the propensity match cohort, N equals 83 in each group. Results. In the crude cohort, all-cause mortality was significantly lower in the early catheter ablation group than in the control group, log rank, P less than 0.001, hazard ratio, HR, 0.38, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.24 to 0.60. In the propensity-matched cohort, all-cause mortality was also significantly lower in the early ablation group, log rank, P equals 0.014, HR, 0.47, 95% C, 0.25 to 0.88. Cardiovascular death and HF mortality were significantly lower in both cohorts. Conclusions In this nationwide cohort of Japanese patients with HF and AF, ablation for AF within 90 days after admission for HF was associated with improved long-term outcomes, including cardiovascular and HF death. Second article Effect of semaglutide 2.4 mg once weekly on function and symptoms in subjects with obesity-related heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, STEP-FEF. The STEP-FEF trial showed that, among obese patients with FEF, once weekly subcutaneous semaglutide was superior to placebo in improving body weight and patient-oriented call outcomes at 52 weeks. Description the goal of the trial was to compare the safety and efficacy of semaglutide among patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, FEF, and obesity. Study design. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to once weekly subcutaneous semaglutide, N equals 263, or matching placebo, N equals 266, for 52 weeks. Randomization was stratified according to baseline body mass index, BMI, less than 35 versus greater than or equal to 35 kg slash M2. Semaglutide treatment was initiated at a dose of 0.25 mg once weekly for the first four weeks, and the dose was escalated at four weeks with the aim of reaching the maintenance dose of 2.4 mg by week 16. Total randomized participants, 529, median duration of follow-up, 52 weeks, median patient age, 69 years, percentage female, 56.1%. Inclusion criteria. Age greater than or equal to 18 years, left ventricular ejection fraction, LVEF, of greater than or equal to 45%, ABMI of greater than or equal to 30 kg slash M2. 
New York Heart Association Functional Class 2, 3, or 4 Symptoms 6-Minute Walk Distance of Greater Than or Equal to 100 M At least one of the following findings, elevated LV filling pressures, elevated natriuretic peptide levels plus echocardiographic abnormalities, or hospitalization for HF in the 12 months before screening plus ongoing treatment with diuretics or echocardiographic abnormalities. Exclusion Criteria Patient reported change in body weight of greater than 5 kg within 90 days before screening. History of diabetes. Other salient features slash characteristics. White race, 96%. Median body weight, 105.1 kg. Median BMI, 37 kg slash M2. Median baseline N-terminal probe type natriuretic peptide, NT-prob, 450.8 pg per milliliter. Hospitalization for HF within one year, 15.3%. Baseline medications, diuretic, 80.7%, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, 34.8%, sodium glucose cotransporter 2, SGLT2, inhibitor, 3.6%. Principal findings? The co-primary endpoints for semaglutide versus placebo from baseline to week 52. Percentage change in body weight, minus 13.3 versus minus 2.6, B less than 0.001 key secondary outcomes for semaglutide versus placebo. Change in 6-minute walk distance from baseline to week 52, 21.5 versus 1.2 meters, P less than 0.001 percentage reduction from baseline to week 52 in NT prob, minus 20.9 versus minus 5.3, P less than 0.05 hospitalization or urgent visit for HF, 1 versus 12 events, P less than 0.05 adverse events were similar. Interpretation The results of this trial show that among obese patients with FAF, once weekly subcutaneous semaglutide was superior to placebo in improving body weight, tilde 11% greater weight loss and patient-oriented quality of life, call outcomes including KCCQ CSS and 6-minute walk distance at 52 weeks. American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine sev one fvc Severity Stages for Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease Rationale the diagnosis of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, is based on a low FEV1 FVC ratio, but the severity of COPD is classified using FEV1% predicted, FEV1. Objectives, to test a new severity classification scheme for COPD using FEV1 FVC ratio, a more robust measure of airflow obstruction than FEV1. Methods, in gene, genetic epidemiology of COPD, N equals 10,132. The severity of airflow obstruction was categorized by Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, GOLD, stages 1 to 4, FEV1 of 80%, 50 to 80%, 30 to 50%, and less than 30%. A new severity classification, staging of airflow obstruction by ratio, STAR, was tested in COP gene. FEV1 slash FVC 0.60 to less than 0 0.70, 0.50 to less than 0 0.60, 0.40 to less than 0.50, and less than 0.40, respectively, for stages 1 to 4, and applied to the combined Pittsburgh SCUR and Emphysema COPD Research Registry for replication, N equals 2017. Measurements and main results, the agreements, 
weighted Bangiwala B values, between gold and the new FEV1 slash FVC ratio severity stages were 0.89 in Copgene and 0.88 in the Pittsburgh cohort. In Copgene and the Pittsburgh cohort, compared with gold staging, STAR provided significant discrimination between the absence of airflow obstruction at stage 1 for all-cause mortality, respiratory quality of life, dyspnea, airway wall thickness, exacerbations, and lung function decline. No major differences were noted for emphysema, small airway disease, and 6-minute walk distance. The STAR classification system identified a greater number of adults with stage 3 quarters disease who would be eligible for lung transplantation and lung volume reduction procedure evaluations. Conclusions The new STAR severity classification scheme provides discrimination for mortality that is similar to the gold classification but with a more uniform gradation of disease severity. STAR differentiates patients' symptoms, disease burden, and prognosis better than the existing scheme based on FEV1 and is less sensitive to race-slash-ethnicity and other demographic characteristics. Mortality in patients with obesity and acute respiratory distress syndrome receiving extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, the multicentric obesity study. Rationale, patients with obesity are increased risk for developing acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. Some centers consider obesity a relative contraindication to receiving extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, ECMO, support, despite growing implementation of ECMO for ARDS in the general population. Objectives, to investigate the association between obesity and mortality in patients with ARDS receiving ECMO. Methods, in this large, international, multicenter, retrospective cohort study, we evaluated the association of obesity, defined as body mass index 30 kg M2, with ICU mortality in patients receiving ECMO for ARDS by performing adjusted multivariable logistic regression and propensity score matching. Measurements and main results, of 790 patients with ARDS receiving ECMO in our study, 320 had obesity. Of those, 24.1% died in the ICU, compared with 35.3% of patients without obesity, P less than 0.001. In adjusted models, obesity was associated with lower ICU mortality, odds ratio, 0.63, 95% confidence interval, 0.43 to 0.93, P equals 0.018. Examined as a continuous variable, higher body mass index was associated with decreased ICU mortality and multivariable regression, odds ratio, 0.97, 95% confidence interval, 0.95 to 1.00, p equals 0.023. In propensity score matching of 199 patients with obesity to 199 patients without, patients with obesity had a lower probability of ICU death than those without, 22.6% versus 35.2%, p equals 0.007. Conclusions, among patients receiving ICMO for ARDS, those with obesity had lower ICU mortality than patients without obesity in multivariable and propensity score matching analyzes. Our findings support the notion that obesity should not be considered a general contraindication to ICMO. Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism Efficacy and Safety of Low-Dose Spironolactone for Chronic Kidney Disease in Type 2 Diabetes Context Although adding spironolactone to renin angiotensin system blockers reduces albuminuria in adults with chronic kidney disease and type 2 diabetes, it increases the risk of hyperkalemia. Objective 
To assess whether a lower dose of spironolactone, 12.5 mg D, reduces the risk of hyperkalemia while maintaining its effect on reducing albuminemia. Design Multicenter, open-label, randomized controlled trial. Setting This study was conducted from July 2016 to November 2020 in ambulatory care at three diabetes medical institutions in Japan. Patients We enrolled 130 Japanese adults with type 2 diabetes and albuminuria, greater than or equal to 30 mg GCRE, estimated glomerular filtration rate greater than or equal to 30 milliliter per minute 1.73 square meters, and serum potassium level less than 5.0 mEq L. Interventions The participants were randomly assigned to the spironolactone administered and control groups. Main outcome measures Changes in urine albumin to creatinine ratio, UACR, from baseline over the 24-week interventional period. Results The spironolactone group showed a significant reduction in walker from baseline, mean decrease, 103.47 plus or minus 340.80 mg GCRE, compared with the control group, which showed an increased walker, mean increase, 63.93 plus or minus 310.14 mg GCRE, P equals 0.0007, Wilcoxon Ranksum test and T-test. Although the spironolactone group had a statistically significant increase in serum potassium levels, none of the participants had a potassium level greater than or equal to 5.5 mEq L at 24 weeks. Further, participants with a higher initial serum potassium level tended to have a smaller increase, estimate, minus 0.37, analysis of covariance. Conclusions Low-dose spironolactone administration reduced albuminuria without causing hyperkalemia. Spironolactone administration, the oldest known and most cost-effective mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, at lower doses should be reconsidered. Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism Efficacy and Safety of Low-Dose Spironolactone for Chronic Kidney Disease in Type 2 Diabetes Context Although adding spironolactone to renin angiotensin system blockers reduces albuminuria in adults with chronic kidney disease and type 2 diabetes, it increases the risk of hyperkalemia. Objective To assess whether a lower dose of spironolactone, 12.5 mg D, reduces the risk of hyperkalemia while maintaining its effect on reducing albuminemia. Design Multicenter, open-label, randomized controlled trial. Setting This study was conducted from July 2016 to November 2020 in ambulatory care at three diabetes medical institutions in Japan. Patients We enrolled 130 Japanese adults with type 2 diabetes and albuminuria, greater than or equal to 30 mg GCRE, estimated glomerular filtration rate greater than or equal to 30 milliliter per minute 1.73 square meters, and serum potassium level less than 5.0 mEq L. Interventions The participants were randomly assigned to the spironolactone administered and control groups. Main outcome measures Changes in urine albumin to creatinine ratio UACR, from baseline over the 24-week interventional period. Results The spironolactone group showed a significant reduction in walker from baseline, mean decrease, 103.47 plus or minus 340.80 mg GCRE, compared with the control group, 
which showed an increased Walker, mean increase, 63.93 plus or minus 310.14 mg slash GCRE, P equals 0.0007, Wilcoxon ranks some test and t-test. Although the spironolactone group had a statistically significant increase in serum potassium levels, none of the participants had a potassium level greater than or equal to 5.5 meq slash L at 24 weeks. Further, participants with a higher initial serum potassium level tended to have a smaller increase, estimate, minus 0.37, analysis of covariance. Conclusions Low-dose spironolactone administration reduced albuminuria without causing hyperkalemia. Spironolactone administration, the oldest known and most cost-effective mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, at lower doses should be reconsidered. Second article. Chloride and potassium assessment is a helpful tool for differential diagnosis of thiazide-associated hyponatremia. Context. Differential diagnosis of thiazide-associated hyponatremia. TH, is challenging. Patients can either have volume depletion or a syndrome of inappropriate antidiuresis, SIAD-like presentation. Objective. To evaluate the impact of the simplified apparent strong ion difference in serum, ASID, sodium plus potassium minus chloride, as well as the urine chloride and potassium score, CHU, chloride minus potassium in urine, in the differential diagnosis of TA, in addition to assessment of fractional uric acid excretion, FUA. Methods Post hoc analysis of prospectively collected data from June 2011 to August 2013 from 98 hospitalized patients with TA less than 125 millimoles L enrolled at University Hospital Basel and University Medical Clinic Aarau, Switzerland. Patients were categorized according to treatment response and volume-depleted TA requiring volume substitution or SIAD-like TA requiring fluid restriction. We computed sensitivity analyzes with rock curves for positive predictive value, PPV, and negative predictive value, NPV, of ASID, CHU, and FUA in differential diagnosis of TA. Results an ASID greater than 42 millimoles L had a PPV of 79.1% in identifying patients with volume-depleted TA, whereas a value less than 39 millimoles L excluded it with a NPV of 76.5%. In patients for whom ASID was inconclusive, a CHU less than 15 millimoles L had a PPV of 100% and a NPV of 83.3%. Whereas FUA less than 12% had a PPV of 85.7% and a NPV of 64.3% in identifying patients with volume depleted TA. Conclusion In patients with TA, assessment of ASID, potassium, and chloride in urine can help identifying patients with volume depleted TA requiring fluid substitution versus patients with SIAD like TA requiring fluid restriction. Next, we will be going over articles in the American Journal of Hypertension. Intensive blood pressure control and cardiovascular outcomes in elderly patients, a secondary analysis of SPRINT study based on a 60-year age cutoff. Background In the original SPRINT article, age was categorized at 75 years, which was contrary to many previous clinical trials which is at 60 years. Methods the SPRINT trial randomized 9,361 hypertensive patients to a target blood pressure of less than 120 versus less than 140 mm Hg, intensive versus standard treatment, respectively. 
Age was recategorized as less than 60 and greater than or equal to 60 years and hazard ratios, HRs, were calculated with 95% confidence intervals, Cs, for outcomes and adverse events. Results Intensive treatment reduced primary outcomes significantly in both less than 60 and greater than or equal to 60 years of age subgroups with a relative risk reduction, RRR, of 36% and 22%, respectively, an HR of 0.58, 95% C, 0.36 to 0.94, and 0.78, 95% C, 0.65 to 0.93, respectively. Although the intensive treatment rendered no effect on myocardial infarction (ME) in the overall comparison, it significantly reduced me in patients less than 60 years of age with an RRR of 58% and HR of 0.39, 95% C, 0.17 to 0.91. In the greater than or equal to 60-year age subgroup, reduced heart failure incidence was noted after intensive treatment, including death from other cardiovascular causes. However, these were not observed in the less than 60-year age subgroup. Intensive treatment resulted in significant hypotension, syncope, acute renal failure or acute kidney injury in the greater than or equal to 60-year age group. Conversely, the risk of these adverse effects in patients less than 60 years of age did not increase. Conclusions Intensive blood pressure control is beneficial for elderly patients, age greater than or equal to 60 years, albeit with increased risk of adverse events. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.